and this is the New Books Network. We're joined today by Theodore Dalrymple. He is a retired physician in the United Kingdom, and he is the author of many books, including Life at the Bottom and Romancing Opiates. He is joining us today to discuss his latest book entitled False Positive, A Year of Error, Omission, and Political Correctness in the New England Journal of Medicine. Dr. Dalrymple, thanks so much for joining us on the New Books Network. Thank you for asking me. So um, please explain what this book is about. Uh, The subtitle gives us some sense that it's about the New England Journal of Medicine, but if you can set us up for what it is you were trying to do with this book. Well, the New England Journal is uh, one of the most important general medical journals in the world, if not the most important, and it's a weekly. And what I've done is uh, taken... um, uh, taken uh, 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 some articles or an article from each week for 52 weeks and made a commentary on them. And the idea came to me because a uh, nephew of mine, a French medical student, uh, had to pass an exam in how to read a medical paper, which is a very good idea, actually. And uh, he asked me for some rules, rough rules about how to go about it. And I looked uh, more closely than I'd ever looked before at the uh, New England Journal of Medicine. And uh, I saw that it was full of error. And in its social commentary, it was also pretty politically correct. Uh, and so I decided to do a kind of chronicle taking, as I said, an article every uh, week, m- maybe two articles, uh, and uh, criticizing them. Okay, so this is a journal that is not going to normally be subscribed to or read by non-physicians, correct? Yes, I don't think many non-doctors read it, no. So, in other words, the the readership is rather limited. It's limited to – and is it only published in English or do we know if it's published in other languages? I'm not sure about that. But when you say it's a a limited audience, it is limited, of course, to doctors. But there are a million doctors in America or something like that. And there are millions around the world. And it's read around the world, not only in the United States. Okay. And so you were concerned with uh, the PC element of it. But also you noted that there are errors. Now, when you talk about errors, what kind of errors are you thinking of? Well, they can be very simple, such as that correlation is always taken as causation. And the problem with that is that uh, sometimes the people who find this uh, a correlation have no hesitation in going from there to causation and from causation to public policy uh, almost seamlessly. And uh, there are many other kind of errors. Uh, There are... (laughs) They're slightly difficult to explain. But for example, if we take a screening procedure, often what you find is that when they look at the results, they look at the results of death from the disease which is screened for. Uh, and there's perhaps a reduction in the death from uh, from that disease. But what one wants to know is whether there's an all-cause death rate uh, uh, reduction, because there's not much point in uh, failing to die of one disease if you actually die of another. And this kind of thing is very, uh, very common, actually. And then the other thing is another very common error 
or omission, I suppose I would have to call it, is that a relative risk rate is given without giving an absolute risk rate because you could have a very high relative risk rate while the uh, absolute uh, risk rate remains extremely low. And where you sometimes have to work it out for yourself what the absolute uh, risk is. And where you have to do that, incidentally, is always very low. And so I'm glad you mentioned correlation is not causation. This is one that uh, obviously non-physicians of many stripes would be familiar with because um, we can find correlations in everyday life uh, or seeming correlations and often mistakenly attribute causation to them. So um, the the problem with this, it seems to me, is endemic to all aspects of trying to analyze the world. Uh, but in regard to medicine in particular, uh, one thing that I've been cautioned about over the years is be careful about, for example, uh, reporting on medical developments or articles that are published regarding medical uh, studies, which is you know popular reporting in the popular media, because sometimes you get this very problem of popularizing something where causation uh, is attributed to some degree of correlation. So is that one of your concerns when you're reading this? Is not that doctors necessarily will be misled, although that's possible, but also that the general public, once it learns of these studies, could be misled? Yes, and there are examples of that. I remember some time ago, uh, there was a correlation study between the level of selenium and heart attack, and it was found there was a correlation. And then everyone went off and brought Brazil nuts because uh, Brazil nuts are high in uh, selenium and for a time you couldn't buy um, buy uh, Brazil nuts for love or money and that's the kind of thing that is frequent uh, uh, but it's not just the New England Journal as you as you said it, it's 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 endemic but for example I read recently a uh, uh, an article in uh, JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, which was trying to uh, draw a causative relationship between death and drinking uh, soft drinks. Now, I abominate the soft, soft drinks. I think they're horrible and I, I, um, I detest them. But what was being argued for in this article was uh, public control of soft drinks because there was a, a 1.08 increased chance of of death, all cause death, if you drank uh, more than two such drinks a day for a number of years. Uh, and what was being proposed was a nationwide, if not worldwide, uh, policy on the basis of of a correlation which could only be found incidentally after much statistical manipulation. So that raises another question. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with um, the publishing pressures that are on academics and research scientists uh, to find something new and original. And um, it seems that reproducibility has been a significant problem in the scientific community. You may be familiar uh, with the there's I think that I think it's called the reproducibility project in regard to psychological research. Yes, uh, yes. where they've found rates of not much more than something like 30 percent of uh, studies that they tried to replicate were in fact 
reproducible in terms of their results. And so uh, this, uh, wh- what do you think about this as a problem uh, within science and medicine in particular? Well, it's a very, it's a very big problem, especially where, for, uh, uh, first of all, it's very difficult to reproduce or people don't want to reproduce studies exactly. So they don't want to do exactly the same as what has been done before. So you're not quite sure whether if there's a different result, it's because their method is different. Secondly, there are kind of the studies, enormous studies that are done, which are probably not reproducible at all, such as um, uh, statistical um, examinations of 60 million people. Now, it's very unlikely that anyone is going to go and do another study of 60 million people. So is this problem of things like reproducibility, um, correlation as causation or the impression of it, is this an is this a system-wide problem or is it something that it can be pinpointed, for example, with the roles or the failure to embrace the full role of an editor, say, in a, in a journal like this? Well, I'm not quite sure about that. I, I mean, I would have thought that editors would, uh, would hold up people who go too far in saying that correlation is causation. Uh, but, uh, on the other hand, they want they they want people to take notice of their journal and and therefore um, to be too cautious uh, means that no one will take any notice of you. Um, so I suppose there are uh, uh, there are pressures on uh, on journals to be noticed. Um, uh, but this is about. Uh, Again, I want to make it clear, this is not a problem unique to the New England Journal of Medicine, nor do I say that everything that appears in the New England Journal is bad. That that would be a gross exaggeration. And in the book, I do mention articles which I think were of uh, of great merit and great interest. Um, But uh, this is a problem in all general medical uh, journals, the British Medical Journal, uh, the Lancet, and so on, all of them. So um, let's talk about in detail one area of concern. So you're concerned with political correctness. So um, I think we all know what it means, but what does it mean to you? Um, When you think of uh, the phenomenon of it, uh, this is something that's been around for 30 plus years now, perhaps maybe even longer. Um, How do you see it um, as a phenomenon, especially as it manifests itself among the experts within the field of medicine? Well, the French have an expression, uh, la pensée unique. It's the single view that can be taken by any decent person of a particular problem. And that view is enforced by, enforced is perhaps not the word, promoted by a a refusal to consider any other uh, possible point of view. Um, So one gets the impression that it's uh, propaganda and that to go against uh, what is being propagandized means one is not merely mistaken, but actually a bad person. Um, and, and there are quite a few examples of that. Okay, and so in in the American context, I guess I would think of the uh, tyranny of the majority problem, where you have uh, a majority that becomes an absolute majority, it seemingly, and dissent is not allowed. 
Um, well, you can have a, a tyranny of a minority as well. Sure enough. Sure enough. Or uh, yes, true. And I guess that's probably what you're uh, describing, perhaps yeah. in the medical circles. So um, you, for example, one of the topics that you um, uh, describe uh, episodically by virtue of the arrangement of the book, because it's dealing with a week per, uh, it's dealing with each week over the course of the year that you read these articles, um, is opioids. And yeah. so you've, you've previously written a book on, uh, opiates. Uh, so can you explain how, uh, political correctness has affected medical, uh, practitioners perception, or at least the way it's written about, uh, regarding opioids? Yes. Well, uh, the National Institute on Drug uh, Abuse um, uh, defines uh, addiction to heroin as a um, chronic relapsing brain disease. And it's just a disease like any other. It's like Parkinsonism, Parkin, sorry, Parkinson's disease, not Parkinsonism, Parkinson's disease or rheumatoid arthritis or something like that. It's just something that happens to you. Now, this is a very reduced and, in my view, uh, uh, obviously false uh, view of the problem. I don't claim to have the solution to the problem, but uh, the idea that it is simply a disease like any other uh, is false. And, of course, once... The idea that that it is a disease just like any other gets into the culture, as it were. It's a reasonable expectation of people who are addicted that the doctor should cure him uh, without really any effort on the uh, on the, the patient's part, except to to do whatever the doctor says, to take the drugs he prescribes or whatever it is that he he does and this seems to me not only false but obviously false or false on the most elementary uh, consideration so that for example uh, if one takes uh, an injecting heroin addict how does he become an injecting heroin addict i mean is it something that happens to him or is it actually something that he does that he actually desires most inject injecting heroin addicts inject heroin on and off for about 18 months before they become physically addicted. So this is not, in my view, this is not a short time. As then you have to, then the addict has to uh, learn where to get the drug, how to prepare it. He has to learn how to overlook the side effects um, and so on and so forth. And this obviously indicates to me that these people are actually aiming at addiction. It, it's a kind of romantic, uh, uh, poet modi kind of attitude towards uh, towards heroin. It's not something that just happens to you. And yet, this is uh, the medical, the official medical view. Although, of course, many doctors don't agree with it, but they don't. They almost don't dare say that they don't agree with it. And in the same way, we are now saying that obesity is just something that happens to you. It's got nothing to do with your behavior. It's just something that happens to you. It is a disease. Now, of course, there are medical consequences, both of addiction and uh, obesity, and very severe ones. But that's not quite the same. There are medical uh, consequences to almost everything that we do. But So, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I'm going to say one of the biggest causes of, of of injury in the world, at least in the developed world, is sport. 
Um, but I don't think anyone would say that sport is a disease. Some people might, but... Uh, um, but uh, could be uh, an addiction. <laughs> <laughs> it could be an addiction, yes. Uh, so yeah. in, in regard to uh, what might seem at first blush uh, to be a rather common sense assessment of the volitional acts and steps that are needed, as you just explained, to become addicted, what then is your conclusion? Or what, what do you think is the cause of the, this portrayal of addiction as essentially something devoid of, or at least that ignores or downplays the role of individual choice and responsibility. Is there, is this a ideological project on the part of people who uh, are editing and writing articles that regard addiction this way? Or is it, is it merely kowtowing to what they see as a larger zeitgeist, knowing that their fellow physicians don't really believe that addiction is merely a happenstance condition? What do you think motivates this portrayal of addiction this way? Well, I think that the, I mean, this has been going on for a long time and it's partly ideological, but it's also partly, uh, I'm afraid it, it all began in a rather sordid way in that uh, the NIDA uh, went to Congress uh, many years ago, I think it was 19, early 1970s, uh, I can't remember the exact date, and told them and told them that that uh, uh, addiction was an illness, and that there was a, a a straightforward, or there might be a straightforward um, technical uh, solution to it. And the reason they did that was because they thought that uh, that um, Congress would stump up money if that if they offered a technical solution just around the corner. Um, but wouldn't if they said, well, there are a lot of there are a lot of uh, social factors and psychological factors, and you know it's not straightforwardly a technical problem. And what we can see, I mean, the 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 NIDA is incredibly uh, self congratulatory, as says we now know a lot more about it, and so on and so forth. While uh, three hundred thousand people in America alone have died of overdoses of of drugs uh, that have either been prescribed or uh, of addictions that started off with uh, prescription drugs and the complacency is astonishing right and so on the other hand of course we do have one finger that's being pointed in regard to opioids, at least in the American context, where you have pharmaceutical companies that are being sued by attorneys general at the state level, uh, seeking some degree of compensation uh, for the state and its costs uh, purportedly in relation to the problem of opioid addiction. Nevertheless, no lawsuits have been forthcoming against uh, the medical uh, doctors themselves who prescribed uh, exactly. these opioids. Yeah. yeah. Well, you always sue the people with the most money. No <laughs> Certainly <laughs> enough. I, I, but doctors aren't coming up a pauper, though. <laughs> no, but, but no, I mean, you're quite right. To, you're quite yeah. right. I think, obviously, it's, it's much easier to target large uh, companies than it is individual physicians. Yeah. Um, so in regard to um, the approach that's taken in portrayal of something like, you know, our working example here is the opioids problem. Uh, these are peer-reviewed journals. 
And that means there is, I assume, I, I don't know uh, if the New England Journal of Medicine is what's called double-blind reviews. And just to explain, um, I'm sure most of our listeners understand this, but just to, so we're all on the same page, double-blind is where the author of a submission to a journal uh, has that submission reviewed initially by the editors, and if they, they then think it is potentially worth publication, they'll send it out to usually multiple reviewers who do not know who the author is and also uh, the author will not know who the reviewers are so it's blind on both sides the so-called double blind peer review problem or peer review <laughs> uh, process but it may become a problem and I guess what I'm building up to the question is what if you dissent from this view what if you write an article about the role of volitional acts in causing addiction uh, is it essentially probably something that simply won't be published because it's dissenting from prevailing opinion well i don't know how many people have sent such articles in but i would suspect that uh, your chances of anything being published along those lines would be very slender and you would be regarded, I think, as a, a, a an unfeeling uh, person for suggesting it. And I, I think the reverse is actually true. But uh, but certainly I haven't really seen anything uh, in the New England Journal, for example, which has emphasized people's choices in anything, actually. Um and there are all kinds of omissions which are um, which which one sees, which are obviously intended to, for emotional effect in the New England Journal. So um, obviously, a lot of uh, the problems that are dealt with, medical problems or conditions that are being uh, analyzed, uh, studies that are being reviewed in the journals. Uh, not only New England Journal, but other types of journals, they're going to have potential impacts on public policy. Um, and so medicine's not simply medicine, obviously, especially in a system that you're accustomed to in England, mm. uh, the United Kingdom, it's, um, it is funded by the government in terms of what's treated. Um, access is often a matter of what can be uh, paid for. And so uh, what is your opinion then of how this uh, political correctness and method of review in the journals affects public policy? Uh, well, I think if you, if you blind people to elementary truths, then I think you, you get bad policy. Um, my objection is not, of course, to anybody's individual views. I, I don't mind in the least uh, people... Um, <laughs> expressing views which I don't hold myself. Um, but I do find it difficult when actually what is being done is lying to the people responsible for making policies. Okay, so are you thinking of particular lies? Particular examples? Well, I, I mean, for example, that uh, addiction is an illness and therefore okay. you create a huge bureaucracy to treat it as if it were an illness and then find actually the problem doesn't go away at all. On the contrary, it gets worse. You had mentioned a problem earlier um, in passing or in, in answering an earlier question. We haven't discussed it yet, which is the this notion of cherry picking data. 
Yeah. Um, and so uh, you cherry pick something because you want to reach a particular result. That's unsettling from uh, a layman's standpoint that uh, experts who are publishing results would cherry pick data. Um, should we be unsettled or disquieted by this? Well, in so- yeah, well, yes. Uh, in some ways, things have got a bit better in that respect. So, one particular form of cherry picking is the way in which data which uh, are positive are um, are emphasised, whereas data which are negative are not published. And this was a particular problem, for example, in studies of antidepressants, where. Uh, uh, um, trials which showed them to be effective were published, but trials which showed them uh, not to be effective or to be ineffective were not published. Therefore, uh, doctors were given a false impression of their efficacy uh, with the result that I think something like 16% of adults, not only in America, but in the whole Western world, are now taking antidepressants. Uh, and uh, and of course, these drugs are not just um, uh, harmless drugs. They do have, uh, or can have, I should say, harmful uh, side effects. Uh, now, that problem has been um, at least partly addressed, and that, and now, when you, when a trial is performed, the results have to be published, and that that's an uh, an important advance. But there are other ways of cherry picking, uh, and one one can't prove that this goes on. But of course, if you if you want if you take co- the problem of correlations, if you study enough variables, then some of them will appear to be correlated not by chance, but are actually correlated by chance. Because if you if you examine enough variables, uh, you will get correlations. And one isn't always sh- the, the correct way of going about things is to have a firm hypothesis in the first place. It's not just a, a you know you don't send out a kind of fishing fleet uh, to find correlations. Now one is not always sure that this is this is what has been done. Another I mentioned this uh, case uh, a Danish study on. <clears throat> on the effect of teaching a large part of the population cardiopulmonary uh, resuscitation and putting uh, defibrillators everywhere. Um, It's easier to defibrillate someone than to post a letter now in Denmark. But anyway, um, uh, uh, um, they found found that it had reduced uh, the... uh, uh, number of deaths from cardiac um, arrest outside hospital. But what was clear about this was that if you chose a different date to begin and a different date to end the study, you got a completely different result. Mm. So, so one couldn't one couldn't be, be sure, in fact, I think it's highly likely, that these people had, hadn't chosen the, uh, the dates in order to justify the policy. Right. So that's an obvious suspicion. Uh, it would seem to me that it's even from an expert standpoint like your own, that it would be often difficult to spot when correlation is good evidence of causation. 
In other well, words, yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, uh, the, the, uh, it, this problem in a way started when um, a, a very important correlation was found, namely that between smoking and, uh, and dying of lung cancer. And the people who did that in Britain, and one man called Austin Bradford Hill, who was a, a statistician, not a doctor, uh, actually laid down some ground rules for, for n not for proving that a correlation was um, causative, but for, um, but for suggesting that it is. So that, for example, and I can't remember all of them, but for example, if there's a dose a response curve, or if uh, if there's or if it's biologically plausible. And there are several other criteria. So you can look at those. But I actually, again, in these papers, it seems to me that nobody ever does look at these, these um, criteria, which are useful. They, they're not probative, but they're very useful. But they're not, they're not yeah. used. So there's no obvious employment of a, at least a rather reliable, or at least a common sense, perhaps, reliability uh, for a method that's already existing. If that's the case, if that's true, uh, let me ask what, this may sound like a stupid question, but what, what good then are these publications even for professional doctors? How helpful are they? Well, I don't want to exaggerate because of course, very good things are published in them. And the one example that I always give, uh, because it startled me was a discovery that, um, that peptic ulceration was largely caused by uh, an infective organism, Helicobacter. And I remember reading this with almost disbelief, well, not almost disbelief, with disbelief, uh, in, a, I think it was about 1981 or 82 or something like this. And uh, this was published in The Lancet, and this, nobody believed the, the uh, two chaps who were Australians. No one believed it, uh, and it, but eventually it, it, it proved to be true. And the, these studies, which were extremely important because uh, they have relieved an astonishing um, amount of suffering in the world. And I know this from my own experience because my father suffered for many years from peptic ulceration and he had two dangerous operations and he had to, his life was dominated almost by, by this illness. Well, it's, it's virtually disappeared now. And these studies were published in The Lancet. And so they, it's not, it's not that they're no use, uh, but they have to be read uh, uh, all the studies have to be read very critically. I mean, I, and not many doctors have the time to do it. Most doctors I've asked, I mean, again, this isn't very scientific, but many of the doctors I've asked, I said, what do you do when you read the journal? And they read the summary and they read the conclusion and they presume that the, that the conclusion actually follows from, the, from the, all that's gone before. But it's only when you read the papers line by line that you that you see the defects for example there was one study uh, it was and i can't remember which it was now but the people who in the treatment arm that that is to say the 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 people who were being given uh, the uh, the new drug as against the old drug well uh, several of them died and then they were excluded from the final analysis of the results because they had died 
<laughs> which would seemingly be somewhat relevant. Well, I think the average person would think it was relevant. Sure. Uh, well, so so I, 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 the problem is that we don't have time for this very critical reading because it takes ages to read even one paper really it takes a lot and and the other thing is of course including me you say i'm an expert i'm not an expert at all and uh, you know the statistics are often so complicated that only a statistician could understand them and probably many statisticians wouldn't agree with the statistical methods used in the paper but even so you can criticize um, you can criticize the papers because, as I said, they always take correlation for causation. Right. So um, I guess in some ways my, my question still stands. Not that, not that you didn't answer it, but rather that I'm unsatisfied by the method that you've described, wherein it seems that you've been dealing with two problems, in other words, in this book. On the one hand, you're concerned with political correctness and the type of um, cultural atmosphere that does not readily allow for or entertain dissent. So that's one problem. Uh, and these could overlap and affect one another. But then there's the other problem, which sounds like, to sum it up somewhat clumsily, bad science or kind of clumsy science, or at least uh, methodology that's uh, less than rigorous on the part of the people engaged in writing these studies or pu putting these studies together and then assessing them. And that latter problem, it seems to me, is not merely lamentable. It seems like it's also somewhat potentially dangerous, even for physicians, because as you say, uh, it's a lot of time and effort to actually fully understand not only what a study is communicating or what it, value it might hold, but also what the potential problems are, because sometimes that's a puzzle piece that's not readily seen. And so I guess I don't feel much better about these journals after having read the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, uh, I can't see a complete answer to this. I think a, a more rigorous editing uh, might help, um, uh, but it would make the journal quite a lot thinner. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what it reminds me um, when I was in college and I took a physical anthropology course, one of the I was a history major and it uh, made me consider ever so briefly going into the hard sciences and uh, this remark that a professor made at the end of the course, she said, um, if you want to go into physical anthropology or any other science, you have to be comfortable with ambiguity and insufficiency of data and answers, which struck me as the exact opposite of what I had always conceived science in the broad sense was. In other words, if it was scientific, if it had that appellation, that meant it was certain. There wasn't doubt. It had been concluded and it, it was in concrete, as it were. And instead, she gave me a completely different view, which is that science really is something that's always changing it's evolving and the answers by necessity must be tentative and that's something that's stuck with me ever since and your your book reminds me of this albeit in a disquieting way so yes well i think i i think she's right i mean i think you can exaggerate that i don't think anybody is about to discover that actually the blood doesn't circulate in the body sure. so i think there are some things which are 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 uh, uh, are pretty well established. 
but it's true that, uh, uh, well, as we can see with, say, di dietary advice, I, I mean, the more, the less, if you like, the less founded um, findings are in experimental biology, uh, the more likely they are to be uh, very, very, not doubtful, but, but provisional, shall we say. And I, you probably old enough to um, to uh, remember changes in dietary advice. So that Ab what right, absolutely. Every yeah. year there's a new new uh, diagram, a new uh, yes. A and new, it's uh, not that there, it's not that there's absolutely no data to suggest uh, that the new advice is correct. It's just that uh, people exaggerate the firmness of the advice. And we can see, for example, the how um, actually politics can interfere with, with uh, advice. So that for a long time, uh, fat was regarded as, the, as evil. Well, actually, when I was very young, it was regarded as very good and all healthy babies should be bathed in butter and that kind of thing. Uh, I'm probably older than you. Um, <laughs> so, so, and you should eat, uh, you know, six eggs a week or something or maybe more. And then it became deadly poison. And now we've discovered that the real poison is sugar. Actually, I do believe that sugar is uh, pretty bad. And um, I have reason for for thinking that. But it was very interesting how uh, people who believed it was sugar 40 years ago were, were really prevented almost from putting their uh, point of view and I think have been shown to be more right than wrong. Um, but anyway, so, I, uh, most things are provisional and after all, an improvement in technique is lasts only as long as uh, another yet greater improvement doesn't come along. Well, another um, uh, good point that you make about these journals, uh, the, which we should all celebrate, is what you note to be one of the greatest, um, in some ways, as you put it, unsung advances in medicine over the course of, I guess, the 20th century primarily, is con the use of or employment of controlled trials. Yes. And how these um, are essentially the bread and butter of these studies that are published in these journals. Uh, so, yes, except uh, for the epidemiology, which often is not very well controlled. But yes, I mean, I'm really it's a comparatively late in medical history that anyone has realized that personal experience uh, is, um, is uh, not sufficient to establish the worth of a treatment. I mean, you can say I, I've tried chicken dung for uh, certain diseases and it's always worked. But if you don't know uh, what doing nothing would have done, then you can't say it's worked. But, and this seems a pretty obvious thought. But actually, for most of medical history, most of human history, uh, no one had it. And so... After this in-depth review of the New England Journal of Medicine, are you now more, have you changed the way you read this journal? Uh, well, all journals, really. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I, and um, so it, uh, it, it, it makes life, of course, much harder. Um, it's much easier just to take a conclusion, store it in the back of your mind. I'm not 
practicing anymore. And actually, I could only have done this, this, um, I'd written this book uh, after retirement because I would never have had time for it before I was retired. Right. It, it, the the depth of uh, investigation and review for each of these articles is substantial. Yes. Well, you have to read it with very close attention. And uh, of course, super specialists do read uh, things with cl that kind of close attention. And they, and I dare say, uh, more specialized journals don't suffer from this problem in quite the same way, from these problems in quite the same way. Is that but, including the political correctness issue? Yes, that, I, 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 okay. because they, they they generally don't go in much for um, for social commentary. I see. So okay. it's a general medical journals, that, but that is, after all, what most uh, most people, uh, most doctors do read um, if they read anything, and um, uh, so uh, it's. I don't see it's an it's not an easily soluble problem, but I think no. we should be aware of it, Absolutely. and I think the general public should be aware because if uh, if a newspaper says the New England Journal published this or the Lancet concluded that, they would con they would think that it was uh, coming down from Mount Sinai, right? Not hospital, but they, they sure. Yeah. And so really, in, in that sense, um, this is, I think you're, you, every author wants the widest possible audience, but this was uh, one that goes well beyond doctors in terms of their, how they read their journals and uh, read the presses and the conclusion, and maybe they, they need to read it with a great grain of salt, but also for the general reader. Um, it seems to me that there's a message here about uh, taking these broad recommendations and conclusions from new studies for medical reporting, because uh, presumably that's where these come from, is the next new issue of these journals, and that's where the uh, studies are initially reviewed by reporters as well. Yes, yes. And I don't think, my, my, I, I suspect the reporters don't read them line by line either. Well, that would be shocking. So, you well, mean if they did or if they don't? No, yes, I was being facetious. If they if they did, uh, that would be quite shocking. In in fact, but um, well, thank you so much for uh, discussing this. The book is False Positive: A Year of Error, Omission, and Political Correctness in the New England Journal of Medicine. And its author has joined us today, Theodore Dalrymple. Uh, Doctor Dalrymple, thank you so much for joining us on the New Books Network. Thank you very much.